Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of, of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic... Controlling Urban Chaos The Gilded Age was a time of rapid urbanization, with millions of native-born Americans moving from the farm and millions of immigrants moving from abroad to burgeoning cities in search of work and opportunity. Combined with the help of new technologies, cities were now able to grow up and out in all directions in ways that were unthinkable throughout much of human history. But there were those who saw this incredible growth not as a great blessing or a miracle, but a curse. People who wished to maintain America as it was, in terms of how houses were built and where people could live and work. Their ultimate solution was the idea of zoning, the legal prohibition on construction that didn't fit their idea of what cities and suburbs should look like. What was property use and housing like before zoning, though? Why did the zoners win out? What opposition, if any, did they face? And what can we learn from this era for our own time? With me today to discuss at least some of these issues is Nolan Gray, author of Arbitrary Lines. Nolan, welcome. Thanks so much, Avi. It's a pleasure to, to be chatting with you. Pleasure's all mine. So let me start with the, quest- uh, with the question I ask uh, pretty much all my guests uh, in this series. Let us imagine a uh, city architect or planner from say London, Paris, or Berlin comes to visit the United States at the beginning of our period in, say, 1866, in the middle, say, in the 1890s, uh, and at the end, in 1920, to inquire into the great, massive, uh, and rapid urban development of the rising power of the Western Hemisphere, how cities are managed, how they are built, what problems they have, and so on. What would they see? What would have changed in each period? And what would have stayed the same? Yeah, that's a really great um, multifaceted question. I, I would say the first and most obvious thing that they would probably notice is just the dramatic growth of cities in the U.S., right? Um, so, of course, you had a lot of pre-existing cities going into maybe the 1860s, 1870s. You know, uh, cities like New York, Philadelphia, Boston were major uh, cities already. But even those, right, I mean, dramatically increase. Uh, New York City goes from, like, 1.1 million residents uh, in 1860 to uh, 5.6 in 1920. Um, I mean, this is just dramatic increases in population. Uh, Chicago is probably even more interesting. Um, The the visitor probably would not have recognized Chicago uh, as a city worth noting in, in 1860 or 1870, and then, of course, by the 1920s, it's a it's a major metropolitan area of 2.7 million people. Um, so this is a period of, of fairly dramatic change for for U.S. cities. I think uh, you know beyond just growing very dramatically, I think they would also look 
different demographically, right? So as you said in the opener, of course, many native-born Americans are moving to these cities. Uh, but what's also happening is a huge surge in immigration, right? So immigrants, uh, you know, in the in the earlier period coming from, from places like Germany or Ireland, and of course in the later period coming from places like Southern Europe and, and Eastern Europe. Uh, so cities are growing very, very dramatically. They're incredibly diverse at this time. Uh, and a few other changes that happen that are really, really important during this period uh, would be affecting urban form, right? So as you said, uh, cities in this period are growing both up and out. Uh, the up is thanks to technological innovations that allow for uh, the skyscraper, for example, right? So the first skyscraper is built in Chicago during this period. Uh, this is These new structures are combining uh, steel framing, which allows for economical uh, building up. Uh, previously, if you had load-bearing framing, of course, uh, this was not economical. Your ground floor would have to mostly be supports. So buildings had a natural cap on how tall they could go. Uh, another related technological innovation here is the elevator, right? Uh, so historically, of course, you want to be closer to the ground so you don't have to walk up five or six flights of stairs. Um, elevators invert that and also open up uh, significantly more height. Then later on in the period, uh, well, throughout the period, you're getting improvements in transportation technology. You know, we often think of sprawl as a function of cars. And certainly cars have allowed cities to sprawl out. And by the 1920s, uh, you're approaching mass car ownership, right? Uh, thanks to Henry Ford uh, and, and the improvement in assembly line manufacturing. Uh, but sprawl, of course, starts earlier. It starts with technologies like uh, the, the, the horse-drawn streetcar, and then, of course, the electric streetcar. Um, cities are spreading out very rapidly as it becomes much, much cheaper for people to regularly commute into and out of the city. That's a great introduction. So let me uh, uh, follow that, uh, that up with, a, I guess, a simple question to that uh, go from the macro to the micro. Let us imagine that uh, I am one of those native-born Americans or an immigrant uh, who has moved to the city, who has, uh, thank God, been managed to save up enough money from work or business, uh, and I would like to... Uh, I would like to buy a house, or I would like to, or, or I would like to build a build a home, uh, or invest with uh, some of my neighbors uh, in building a nicer apartment building. In the pre-zoning era, in your average American city, uh, what would I have to do? What obstacles would I face? Uh, and how would opposition, which probably always existed even in the medieval times, uh, to such new construction be dealt with then? Yeah, so I mean, early uh, over the course of this period, I think this is a good question because over the course over the course of this period, there's a cultural project of building up the notion of the suburb, right? Uh, so of course, uh, very early on uh, in 1869, uh, Calvert Vaux and Frederick Law Olmsted design uh, Riverside, which is a, a planned suburb of Chicago, and it looks a lot. It has certain. It's generally considered one of the first, you know modern planned suburbs, has a lot of design features that we would recognize in, uh, for example, a contemporary suburb, uh, strictly, you know, limited, much of it is strictly limited to single-family homes, uh, it would have a commercial corridor, um, but an element of, of what's going on here 
uh, at this time is that technological innovation that I was talking about, right? So historically, suburban exclusion would have been maintained simply by the fact that it was very expensive to get out to the suburbs, right? Most people just don't have the money um, to take a carriage in and out of the city every single day, a horse-drawn carriage in and out of the city, uh, or, or even the money to pay for a horse-drawn streetcar, right, it, to the extent that that infrastructure existed at all. Uh, but part of what's happening in this period is that things like streetcars are making it much cheaper for regular, uh, let's say, upper-middle-class people to buy homes uh, far out in the suburbs. But of course, as that's happening, uh, right, as technological uh, technological innovation is bringing down the cost of, of commuting further and further out of the city, that's opening up some of these suburbs that were previously kept uh, exclusionary simply by nature of being expensive to get to, uh, to less and less affluent residents. And so then, of course, this is, I think, by the end of this period, why you start to get a push for policies like zoning, which entrench uh, economic segregation, because once everybody owns a car or once you have, you know, comprehensive and very inexpensive streetcar networks, it's very cheap for most people to get out to most suburbs. And so what you see is 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 the suburbanization, uh, mass suburbanization, right? And of course, the, the 1920s are where we start to develop uh, policies that would go on to lay the financial and planning groundwork for the country that we have today. I'd like to follow up on that uh, last point of yours a bit, because uh, reading your first chapter in preparation for this interview, I thought to myself, you mentioned how uh, zoning uh, very much emerged, at least in the beginning, as kind of ad hoc responses to specific challenges uh, that uh, native-born uh, or more native uh, industries uh, weren't particularly fond of, new immigrants coming in and so forth. But the truth is, is that 1916 is very late in the game in terms of uh, the progressive era itself, which is said to have begun in 1900, if not already the 1890s. And immigration, mass immigration, have been a thing at least since the 1880s. So I guess my question is not why did zoning happen, but why did it take so long for this idea of there ought to be a law to keep things in place? You know, that's a really good question. Uh, I would say, I mean, first, like, there were forms of land use regulation that existed before zoning, and many of them were, were, were fairly novel during this period, right? Uh, so historically, and then, of course, increasingly as industrialization takes off, you do have rules to say, okay, certain forms of noxious industries have to be physically separated from the rest of the city, uh, certainly from residential, from schools, from uses that maybe are sensitive to emissions. Uh, you know, you historically have rules saying, like, for example, a slaughterhouse has to be outside of the city limits, or a slaughterhouse has to be in X location. Uh, so you have all these rules kind of on the books, and you get more and more of that. And then there are other progressive era sort of reforms happening to deal with things like overcrowding or building safety, right? Um, but that's a really interesting and important point, that the, the zoning kind of comes late in the process, right? Uh, but I think what we're seeing is essentially this ideological framework of, okay, let's get all the smartest people in the room and sit down and write out a plan for the next 20 years where we, 20 to 50 years, where we say, this is what's going to be allowed and at what scale on every single lot in the city. I think it takes a lot of ideological sort of groundwork to get to that point, right? And also too, I think a big issue with early zoning is overcoming the, the I think, natural skepticism that many Americans have of having very, very, very strict state control over what you can and can't do with your property. And part of that's cultural, but part of that's also legal, right? So I think a lot of what's going on with the 1916 
coordinates in New York City is they're trying to be very, very, very careful to develop something that's uh, going to pass uh, constitutional scrutiny, uh, right? So in 1917, one year after the first Euclidean zoning code start to come online, the Supreme Court uh, turns down explicitly racial zoning, right? So over the course of the 19-teens, uh, many cities had been instituting uh, zoning that essentially said whites can live here and blacks can live here uh, with, you know, ambiguous cases in between. Uh, Supreme Court turns that down. And so what many cities start looking for is a mechanism for economic or class-based exclusion. And Euclidean zoning ends up becoming that mechanism. And then, of course, the federal government uh, gets behind it and starts promoting it very heavily. Why did it happen in the 19-teens? Uh, I think a few things. I think the car is really what starts to open up a lot of suburbs, right? So mass car ownership opens up a lot of suburbs to two things. One, it probably opens them up to uh, non-residential uses, right? So maybe warehouses or commercial operations that were previously bound to rail yards or to uh, ports now can move out to the suburbs. I also think uh, people who were not nearly as affluent can start moving out to the suburbs, right? Uses in general are just quite a bit more mobile. So for example, in the New York City context, right, what, what's partly what's going on is um, the loft manufacturing of clothing is creeping up further and further closer to um, the posh shopping district Fifth Avenue than as now very, very posh shopping corridor. And uh, what that's doing, and this was the Fifth Avenue Association ended up being one of the main constituencies for zoning in New York City. And you think, oh, okay, like lofts are coming near them. It must be like negative externalities, like smoke or noise that bug them. But actually what, what they were irritated about was the, the, the poor uh, Eastern European uh, factory girls, uh, uh, Eastern European Jewish factory girls who would come out uh, on their lunch breaks and window shop along Fifth Avenue. Uh, right, and so these are these are lofts that I think are, are newly are newly mobile, and I think it's a similar dynamic that's happening with apartments. Right, historically, apartments uh, served lower income populations, and they had to be in areas that were within walking or maybe even streetcar distance of jobs. Uh, but mass car ownership starts to change that dynamic. It makes it much easier uh, for populations that might still live in an apartment to live further and further out. And so you start seeing apartments getting built in desirable suburban areas. And then, of course, residents of those areas look to the state for mechanisms of exclusion. Which brings me to a follow-up question, uh, which I really uh, wanted to ask, uh, having already read and uh, interviewed a number of people about the immigrant populations in the United States, many of whom really did uh, come into cities. Um, while it is true, uh, and I'm sure you'll tell me more about it, that uh, established, uh, more native-born populations or people who have uh, long ties to a location can, ha can punch above their weight. It is nevertheless also true that in many of these cities, certainly the mega cities and even the smaller cities, um, immigrant populations, certainly after they'd had a bit of time to acclimate, had a lot of political power. They had machines, they had people who were appointed to various positions uh, in city government and occasionally and often were critical to help uh, elect mayors and stuff like that. Um, did, did they just like accept all this sitting down? Did they try to fight back? Uh, was there a divide between immigrants who said, you know what, I like this idea because I'd like to continue to assimilate and these people have the right idea about how to engineer the chaos because I'm sick of the chaos? Uh, like how how is it... Um, their, their part of the story seems to be a bit muted. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. A few things on this. The first is in the in the in the low density residential suburbs that are the municipalities that most eagerly start adopting zoning. There wouldn't have been any type of ethnic machine politics uh, of the of the kind that you're talking about, right? So there would not have been. Uh, any pushback in that sense. Within cities, right, I think this is very much in line with the typical progressive era good governance uh, politics that is happening in this period, right? And when you look at the New York City, you know, Berkeley is, is, is an example of that first piece, right, where it's like there just aren't ethnic politics. It's a bunch of very wealthy, predominantly native-born homeowners. Uh, but the New York City context is interesting as to your to your question of, well, what, what did this, how did this fit into that political framework? And you see, it's a, it was a really, really hard thing to get through. Uh, you know, there was uh, urban politics during this period very much are a competition between these, you know, whiter, wealthier, um, uh, good government progressive blocks, and then the more ethnic patronage machines. Um, and so, you know, in the New York City context, this ordinance gets pushed through, passed through, and then very, very quickly becomes recognized as a mechanism for graft, Right. So, you know, it's not maybe the type of good government progressive reform that the ethnic machines would have wanted to institute, but once it was instituted, uh, it, it was very, very amenable to these political machines, which could then uh, use their political power to disperse um, uh, permits and zoning approvals and change zoning and use that to uh, uh, collect revenue uh, to win political favors. So, you know, very. Uh, this is another sort of issue with the modern zoning system is because there's so much discretion within it, even though it's theoretically meant to be sort of as of right and predictable, there's so much discretion into it that it actually allows for a lot of graft. Um, so to that extent, right, it actually was almost a gift to a lot of these uh, machines that, that were engaged in more uh, trans transactional politics. Wow. So it, it sounds like it was kind of a... a, a uh, it was a, another Baptist and bootlegger deal, like uh, you said before, uh, uh, like you said in, in your book. Um, so I thought I might add to it, though. Uh, you mentioned um, in the first chapter that even before there was zoning, there were all sorts of, and you mentioned in your interview, that there were all sorts of uh, health and safety regulations, um, and there was even, like we called the City Beautiful movement. Um, surely... Uh, I know, for instance, when I interviewed uh, Professor David Bernstein about uh, the Lochner case, then as now, even even regulations that are ostensibly for health and safety are easily uh, captured by existing industries uh, to try and kill small business competition. How is that uh, any different materially than uh, zoning segregation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly... Um that's what's happened with zoning, right? I mean, zoning clears constitutional muster on the basis of a classic police power, health, safety, welfare, justification, and you could be ambler, uh, where the Supreme Court says, yes, you uh, can engage in, in economic segregation uh, as a, as a, as a, on the basis of, of health, safety, and welfare. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's an interesting literature on some of the reforms that have been undertaken before zoning. Uh, right, so you know some of the the tenement laws in New York City, or some of the attempts to actually have uh, building code regulation. Right, this is all solidifying in this period. Of course, some of this pre-existed. You know, some of this has been around for quite a long time, right? And this is another thing I'm I'm trying to I try to emphasize in the book. Humans have been engaged in city planning uh, basically since we first you know ceased to be nomads, 
the idea of sitting down and planning out your streets, your parks, uh, maybe having a general sense of, of uh, where your major public facilities are going to go. That's certainly something that humans have done since the dawn of time. Uh, but what zoning is trying to do, which is to try to comprehensively segregate land uses and comprehensively control the density of what can be built on every single lot, that is new. Um, and I would say that that's meaningfully different from a lot of the health and safety initiatives that have been pushed previously. That's not to say that, that those weren't in some circumstances captured by certain interests or, you know, certainly there's, there's I think, literature on some of the, the housing laws that came into effect, which is they actually had unintended consequences to the extent that it actually made it hard to build um, affordable, low quality, but basically safe housing. Um, but I tell that history in the book partly to emphasize that the actual impacts, like the, the, the real things that made urban life so difficult and so unpleasant in this period, uh, we were actually making some progress on. And zoning is actually doing something very, very, very different, which is essentially a, a mechanism of social control and, and state-controlled uh, state segregation. So um, I guess for a uh, final act, uh, you're, you are well known uh, among uh, people who discuss uh, questions of housing and zoning, whatever, as saying, we need to get rid of zoning entirely. Are you basically saying we need to go back to the Gilded Age with, along with obviously health and safety regulations updated and that that's a good thing contrary to the image that many people have of uh, what went on before? Yeah, I mean, I so I'm defining zoning and I think a very conventional way as trying to do two things, segregate land uses and restrict density. Um, I don't think that this framework has gotten us what it claims to get us. Uh, which is, you know, we're going to make sure that there aren't incompatible neighbors and we're going to make sure that growth is coordinated with infrastructure investment. As I argue in the book, I think it's very clear that the system has failed on these, you know, contemporary stated justifications for the policy. But the policy has actually succeeded spectacularly on all these margins where I don't think we would say the state has a role. For example, increasing housing, deliberately increasing housing prices or mandating the segregation of our cities based on, on race and class, or forcing cities to take a sprawling auto-oriented form uh, when maybe other folks might want to actually live in a different mode of, 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 of travel. Um, right, so yeah, I do think we can get rid of it. I actually think it's undermining most of the city planning objectives that we have today. It's manifestly failed uh, to achieve what it was trying to do that was positive. Um, now, that's not to say that I don't think there should be any land use regulation or any state involvement in planning. Actually, I think part of the problem with zoning is that it's distracted us from the things that the state can potentially do quite well, right? Regulating actual impacts, regulating um, building safety and building um, health and safety issues, right? Um, regulating things that just sort of fall by the wayside in modern US cities like noise or light or traffic generation. Um, in many cases, uh, zoning either doesn't care about these issues or actively makes them worse in the case of traffic by mandating off-street parking. Um, there's an important role for the state there. Uh, of course, you know, I think we don't want to go purely back to the Gilded Age in the sense of where uh, all, you know, there's absolutely no role for the state in housing. Of course, I think you need very strict uh, health and safety regulations. Uh, you need to design those well to where they're not hurting the people they're trying to help, but I think you can do that right. And you need uh, some support for people who are going to fall through the cracks in markets, right? People maybe who have certain conditions where uh, they will never be able to get a decent market rate 
uh, unit. I think if you have housing abundance, most people actually will get access to affordable, decent housing, no problem. But there will always be people who fall through the cracks and you want to make sure uh, that you're providing for them. And then I also think, you know, planners have an extremely important role in doing the type of work that actually they did until the modern era, right? And this is something that I think you, you see even up until the Gilded Age, right before the adoption of policies like zoning, you actually need planners to do things like develop street plans uh, so that you're going to have an interconnected network of streets that actually makes some sense. Or you need planners to sit down in advance of growth and say, here are where the parks are going to go, here are where the public facilities are going to go, here are where the streets are going to go. But then what you do on your private lot, um, as long as you follow basic health and safety rules, we don't really care. That was really the model of city planning uh, up until the very end of the Gilded Era uh, and the Gilded Age. And then, of course, that all sort of falls by the wayside where we do the opposite now. So now, in you know, U.S. city planning, we spend so much time trying to, through the policy of zoning, uh, regulating what you can and can't do on private land, and then just no real management or stewardship of the public realm, which is actually where I think city planners uh, can and did add a lot of value. That's a really great uh, summary of the issue, uh, and I happen to agree with you on a lot of that. Uh, if I may add, and I know that this isn't your area of expertise, you're a planner, not a politician, but still, uh, you noted uh, how um, there was effectively uh, an alliance of uh, uh, an alliance of clashing interests in various cities that led to allowing zoning for different reasons, which basically meant meant that anybody who opposed zoning was left in the lurch. What are, if any, concentrated constituencies that you see today um, in at least some cities that could serve as, I guess, kind of a counterbalance to the interests that are clearly very powerful that really like zoning and want it to never go away? Yeah, so I mean, I would just look to California where I think Gimby or Yes in My Backyard politics are most advanced, right? Where people are actively taking on a lot of these zoning rules that keep cities in a straitjacket. Uh, and the constituencies there, I think, are two groups. Renters, for whom uh, rents are just going to keep going up and up and up. And I think a lot of young professionals who actually have no path to homeownership in the place where they're from, right? So this is now true of, of, of course, along the coast, and it's increasingly true all across the country. And uh, I believe it's true in much of the Anglosphere. Um, many young people have no path to homeownership in the place that they're from. And this is in no small part because zoning places extreme restrictions on adding additional housing or additional density in already built up areas. Um, those groups, I think, are, are have been totally activated on the issue over the last 10 years. And this is why we've seen so much progress on it. And this is why we're talking about it. I think they're feeling it. I think in a subtler way, though, the system also just doesn't work for the homeowners who are its intended beneficiary, right? So I always give this example. Imagine you're a homeowner and you bought your home in, in the Bay Area in the 1970s, in one sense, you won the lottery, right? Your home went from like $25,000 to $2 million. Uh, you have all this housing wealth. Uh, in one sense, you, you're, you, you've totally won, right? Uh, but then your, your adult children can't afford to live within two hours of you. They've moved away. You never get to see them. Uh, you never get to see your grandkids, uh, if you have grandkids, because they're in another city. No, that family can't afford to live near you. Uh, all of your friends and colleagues are cashing out and moving away to a place like Las Vegas or Oregon or Arizona. Uh, so all of your friends and colleagues are leaving. Uh, you theoretically have this wealth on paper, but if you wanted to sell your home and maybe downsize within your community, well, guess what? You've been NIMBYing 
uh, those fourplexes or those townhouses or those condos that you might have been able to retire into. So I think you have that group of people for whom they're renters or they are aspirational homeowners and they're locked out by zoning constraints. But also, even for the people that the system theoretically benefits, I think it just doesn't work. And I think we're actually at a real inflection point right now where we're going to start seeing these rules dramatically liberalized in the next five to 10 years because of this. We're sort of at the zoning endgame, right? We've kept cities in this straitjacket for 100 years, and we've been tightening it, especially over the last 50 years. And uh, we're at a breaking point, and uh, we really kind of have nowhere to go but up. Well, here's hoping that we do indeed have nowhere to go but up. Uh, Nolan Gray, this has been an excellent and very informative introduction uh, to a very important but perhaps overlooked uh, aspect of our period and of American life. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks so much, Avi. It's a pleasure being here, and I look forward to future conversations.